Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Alone Podcast. With us for this episode, we have Coulter Barnes. Coulter, as we all know, was a participant on season eight of the Alone Show. Uh, I was able to somehow manage to wrangle Coulter uh, way up in the North Country. So Coulter, thank you for taking some time out of your road trip and stopping, it looks like, somewhere warm and cozy to chat with us today. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's good to be here. Uh, yeah, coming at you from negative 20 in Whitehorse, Yukon. So really uh, glad we could catch up. Yeah, I like I said, I'm super excited to be here. And it's funny, we were kind of chatting beforehand. And, you know, Coulter is one of the ones I've reached out to for a while. And you were way off the radar. So I <laughs> I feel kind of bad. It seems like you just barely surfaced. And you've got some guy reaching out to you already. But uh, really appreciative that you're willing to say yes and be so, um, I guess, easy with your schedule. And it was funny, I was thinking, because I knew you were on that road trip, I was thinking you were going to be the furthest north episode recorded of the Alone podcast, but I think Jose still has you beat. So um, anyways, with that said, Coulter, what I like to do is just kick it to you and let you give your background bio, kind of tell who you are, and then we'll see where we go. Yeah, Jose beat me with uh, beat me with his boat too. I don't know if you remember his boat, but uh, it was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. His ribs and just his craftsmanship. So doggone it, two to nothing, Jose. But uh, <laughs> but yeah. So, well, long story short, like I was born in Montana, um, moved out to Oregon when I was young, raised in Oregon, completed high school there, went back to Montana for college. Moved to Alaska at 22. I moved into a, uh, a bush, a native village of Kokonok. And, um, and I've been in the bush for 15 years. And uh, recently just took about a 12-month hiatus down in the lower 48. Met a girl, kind of followed her around uh, in the lower 48. And now I'm just on my way back home. So lots happened in there, of course. But um, that's kind of geographically at least where I've been uh, last throughout my life, I guess. You're gonna you're gonna make me start working already. <laughs> um, so when you I mean Montana, were you in a small town in Montana, and then was it small town Oregon as well, or was it more urban? What was yeah. your where were you at? It was pretty small town. I was born in Cupbank, Mon or uh, Shelby. We were living in Cupbank, Montana, but uh, and then when I moved out to Oregon, Madras, Oregon, you know, it was about thirty five hundred people, so all pretty pretty rural um and pretty diverse so where i grew up in madras we were you know basically a third latino a third uh native because we had the warm springs indian reservation right there and then a third white it was a big agricultural community so um yeah always pretty rural and uh and the biggest town i'd lived in i've still lived in my entire life was bozeman montana when i went and got my undergrad uh at msu i think it was maybe twenty thousand people so you say to be clear bozeman bozeman 2023 is probably a lot different than bozeman 2005 2010 but <laughs> yeah that place is changing just all every five years it's uh it's i don't know evolving and getting a new face up but it's funny because when i was in college i worked for a lumber yard there and we uh and delivered god i don't know how many thousands uh sheets of sheetrock into some of those new developments and uh yeah, it's just blowing up and going crazy. I understand it, but uh, but you know, everyone's kind of nostalgic for what it used to be, and um, but it is what it is. Yeah, you know, it's kind of crazy. My my parents they have a place in a really small town in Montana. Like, I don't know, there's probably 250 to 300 people that live within the city limits, and then maybe another you know double that if you 
expand your radius out into the ranching community. Um, and I mean, they've seen all of their real estate get snatched up and, you know, lots that just always used to be empty are getting built on. And I mean, it, it's, it's crazy how that drive and that desire, I guess, to, to be somewhere is what I would say is, has increased so much over the last few years. Yeah. Yeah, no, I always claim to be more Montana than I am. I feel like I was born there, went to college there, but there was a big gap. I wasn't there, but, you know, I have a lot of family there. I was named after John Coulter, uh, who was the only guy to leave the Lewis and Clark expedition back in the early 1800s. And, uh, and so it's just the people, you know, the country in Montana is phenomenal. Obviously, the mountains and the rivers and, and everything there is about the, the prairie out east and but uh, I think it's the people that make Montana, Montana. So I hope the people that are coming in embody uh, that spirit of what it is. And uh, it'll always be a gem to me. It'll always have a, a soft place in my heart. So, Gem. Was that like a, was that a Montana pun? Isn't Montana the gem state? I don't, man. I mean, it's the big sky state. I know that. <laughs> but I, don't, I don't know if it's the gem state. Um, so I'm, I'm interested it's a, I think it's a natural, it feels like a natural progression to go from like small town, I guess small town Montana, small town Oregon, back to small town Montana, and then to Alaska. Like it feels like Alaska. I mean, it's, you know, obviously the, the last frontier or whatever, right? It's like that next step. But what was the drive to, to go to Alaska and to, I mean, you you really kind of glossed over what you did there, obviously. But what was that drive to make that happen and make that change? There's so many, you know, tipping points as to what sent me there. You know, I, I think just from birth, all the you know hunting and fishing and and loving the outdoors and camping. And then I met a friend, Jesse, who bought me a fly rod when I was 12. And then, you know, and my dad ran nursing homes and I talked to a lot of uh, people, you know, really close to death that said I was gonna go to Alaska one time, but, or I spent time in Alaska, let me tell you, boy. And, uh, and then when I was in college, my junior year, there was a documentary on PBS, the only thing in my life I've ever recorded on VHS. And uh, and it was called One Man's Wilderness or Alone in the Wilderness, uh, Dick Prenicky. And I recorded this for an hour my junior year with bunny ears. It's all staticky. And then I literally, after it got done, I hit rewind, hit play and watched it again. So I spent two hours and I was that was it. I mean, I was pointed north. So that, you know, tipped me over the edge. But it was a lot of things in my life that kind of pointed me north. And uh, and I'm really lucky I did. I thought to myself when I went to Alaska at 22 years old, I said, this is just going to be Montana, but a little wilder. So we'll see. And uh, and boy, I was wrong. It is like no place I've ever been to on Earth. It is. Uh, yeah, it's just where I want to be. So. Yeah, quick shout out. If you haven't seen that PBS program um, that Coulter was referencing, I'm actually kind of surprised that we're 31 episodes in and I don't think anyone has mentioned Dick Prenicky yet in that that whole thing because um, I think that was probably the the starting point for a lot of people's life change. I don't know. It's, just, it's a fascinating a fascinating watch. Um, well, let me tell you something real quick. Sorry, yeah, please, that, no, that's what, we're, that's what we're here for. <laughs> it's for you to tell us stuff. I got to boot camp at alone. And, uh, you know, this is, let's see, I'm 36. This is 15 years after I watched that documentary. Loved it. I've, you know, preached it and shared it all over. People got to watch it, watch it, watch it, pass that VHS tape around. And uh, and we were sitting in a wall tent having breakfast with all the other contestants. And it came up, the show came up alone. And 
or alone in the wilderness. Well, I didn't know that the the program I was on alone, History Channel's program, was based off of Alone in the Wilderness, off Dick Prenicky. He went into the wilderness. He self-filmed. He took very minimal equipment. That's the basis for the show. And I was like so embarrassed that I hadn't put that together. <laughs> I hadn't yet either until just now. <laughs> um, that's fascinating. It's funny. I've I've tried. I've tried to get some of those original kind of producers and the the minds behind the show. And I was really close once. And then I don't know what happened. I don't think I said anything offensive. I try not to be offensive um, because I want to hear those stories of the, the kind of the, the beginning of that, but I had never thought of that. That's really cool that, that, that kind of, this is like the rebirth of that in a way. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's really neat. And so how did you choose your landing spot in Alaska? I mean, it sounds like you were small native village. I mean, was it just finger on the map? Did you have connections in that region? Is that where no, the gas I, money ran out? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, uh, I, I went there, I was going to be a school teacher. So I went up there, went to a, jo- a job fair in Anchorage, got offered three jobs the first day I was there. One in Savunga on St. Lawrence Island, closer, you know, right in the middle between Alaska and Russia. I got one at Stony River and one at this place called Kokonok. And uh, and I they, I asked them for 24 hours to make a decision. So I spent 24 hours um, trying to research all I could about these three places and ended up going with Kokonok. And I was there eight years from 22 to 30 and absolutely it just um, changed my life. It, it changed the people I met, the culture um the location just the whole lifestyle rock my world i thought i knew you know i thought i knew hunting and fishing or i thought i knew living close to the land i thought i knew what community was and uh and that all just i went in there and finally shut up and listened and watched and uh and learned so much so those years were were huge yeah, i don't know my development and learning and becoming a human and and uh so I'm really glad I made that choice. Not to say the other two wouldn't have been just as life-changing, but uh, but I'm happy I went with the one I did. Is is that the region you're heading back to, or are you going? Yep. Okay. Yep. So I have a little uh, little quirky homestead mini farm slash a really brutal camp uh, there that I'm heading back into, and uh, and it's been about eight years. So I moved down to Southeast Alaska, uh, my sailboat. And, um, and had been working as a principal and a greenhouse manager and working for an environmental science um, field school, teaching homesteading and, and, and living there. So I've, I've been doing some other things, but I'm just heading back there after eight years uh, hiatus. Have you, have you been into your, I'll just call it your camp, in those eight <laughs> years? Or has it been just No, I've been untended. in once or twice. I've been in one or, once or twice for some... Uh, for some visits, but like all of us, uh, it's just compost and training. So it's, uh, it's not a turnkey place. There's no running water. You know, the only heat source is wood and, and, uh, it's a pretty rough little camp. Uh, I think my mom came once and said, uh, I'll see you when you have running water again, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm excited to get back in there. The community, again, the country's phenomenal, history's phenomenal, but it's the people there that really make the place. So I'm excited to get back in and get connected and uh, hopefully give uh, whatever I can. So, um, you, You've talked a few times about the, the people and the culture. Um, what about it do you love so much? And 
is there anything or, or I guess that's that would be a dumb way to ask that question. What about it do you love so much and what really does do the rest of us stand to learn from the community you're living in or going to be living in or moving back to? Yeah, so, you know, obviously I'm not uh, in a position to be able to tell their story. Certainly. And their and their history and their culture, but I'll tell you, you know, from the time I've got to spend there, what uh, what I love about it and appreciate is just um Oh, they've been there for thousands of years, you know, um, and they've uh, and they're they're matriarchal. It's just like um, just taking care of when, when women are in leadership roles. I just feel like, you know, elders and kids and people are taken care of and there's consensus building and you take some of the ego and competition and uh, communication is just phenomenal. And so like from a leadership kind of looking at the culture from like uh, it's a very encouraging place to, to try new ideas, to try learning about building or learning about, you know, trapping or learning about a different way of life. And, um, and there, and it's just, you know, not, not being surrounded by naysayers, like saying, Oh, you can't do that. Or that looks funny. Or this isn't right. Or it doesn't look like a contractor or blah, blah, blah. It's like, people are like, yes, go for it. Great. They're just like big, you know, they're just cheerleaders for you. They want to teach you things. And um, if you're willing to listen, and uh, the sense of humor and laughter and simplicity and like, God, I could go on forever, but it's just like, it's so beautiful. I'm not saying that every place doesn't have its dysfunction. You know, every place on the planet has, uh, you know, things that are that are difficult and challenging. It's not like um, uh, a miss from that, but it's just, uh, it's a very simple way. You take a lot of the things that we get stuck in the grind, a lot of our comfort creeps that happened down in the lower 48, a lot of our traffic and errands and food and our devices, you take a lot of that out and you get hours in your day where you can be engaged and focused and present um, on the people in front of you, on the on the country in front of you and living simply and finding the beauty in that. And just the gratefulness for like, I remember the first time I, you know, like an oven, like an oven is this magic box that holds the temperature 400 degrees. Like go find that in nature where you can just turn a knob and it'll stay within that temperature for hours on end. Like it's just stuff like that. It's like, if you go without it for a while, you learn to realize um, all the privilege and entitlement stuff we were born into. And it's not something to feel bad about. It's just that we don't take it for for granted how beautiful and amazing and uh, and convenient our lives are. So anyhow, I don't know. There's so many things about the culture out there. And they live close to the land, man. I mean, there's no economy out there. So they're not they're not making a ton of money to, to go trade for everybody to do things for them, grow them food and build their homes and do all this stuff for them. Like they got to live pretty frugally and close to the land and go get caribou and salmon and berries and put up stuff. And, uh, and what comes with that, man, I and mean, you're doing it with like multiple generations. I never got to pick berries with my grandparents or, uh, you know, take a steam bath, a muck eye or put up fish, you know, with, with our family and neighbors. Like that wasn't a thing. We were very isolated in the neighborhood I grew up in, even though it's a small community and we had friends and stuff, but, uh, it wasn't a shared lifestyle. I feel like it was recreation. Sure. Go play on the playground or play outside, but it wasn't like we were living and working and breathing together like it is out there. Yeah. It it's, it's obviously been a while since you've been there. Um, but when you were there, do you recall and, 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 you know, and if it's not, if you're not comfortable speaking, that's fine too. But do you recall that it was still a, a, a generational thing? So the younger generations were latching on to those practices and those techniques and continuing that on as far as the hunting and the fishing and the gathering. Yeah. I mean, uh, 
yeah, I'll speak to kind of what I can, of course, but it's like, um, it's like any younger generation. I'll tell you this real quick. I've played Santa Claus six times in my life. Okay. And kids come and sit on my lap. They're always honest and Rob, but they're sitting on a magical being. You're, you're this guy that rides, you know, reindeer around and sees, you watch what they're doing and determine if they're good or bad. You go down chimneys, you do all this stuff. And a three-year-old thinks you're the real thing. You know, anyone over six, they've done the drill before, but they sit on your lap and they ask for more plastic crap, more plastic junk. And so it's, we trained them to say that we sung the songs and gave them the commercials and the shows we trained. They didn't come out of the womb like that. And so, yeah, kids are very malleable. So whatever we put in front of them, they're going to latch onto. So if it's an iPad or it's consumer goods or whatever it is, like they're, they're not, they're not, the kids out there are any different, you know, in terms of that than kids anywhere on the planet. So, but yeah, they have less access to that. So when you have less access to the, to the constant shopping and, you know, consumers, how we define ourselves and GDP and all that stuff. Like, so yeah, they're, they're less into clothes and shoes and, and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And they, and, and so they follow their grandparents, like in the summer, a lot of anyone from about 15 to 55 goes commercial fishing out of the village and goes and makes a living for the year. And uh, so what's left is the young kids and the elders. And, and so, yeah, they're watching them and learning and playing and engaging outside. And, uh, and so, yeah, you do get, you definitely get more of that, of the hunting and fishing and, and the pride in that, but, um, but they're not immune to wanting the shiny, flashy, uh, quick and easy stuff that we all, you know, it's so accessible now. Yeah. I, I think it's such an interesting, you know, obviously I live in, a, I live in a large city and it is such an interesting balance and it's interesting to try and I guess, navigate that, right. Navigate the, the, the world we live in today and the, the wonders of technology and the wonders of, of just the possibility that exists, but then also realizing that something in us needs something much more simple than, than what we have today. And I think that's a good point. I mean, so you lived a very, uh, maybe rustic, I don't know if rustic is even, is even close enough of a word, but um, you've lived a, a very specific type of life. And it sounds like you spent the last 12 months or so, you know, lower 48, and I'm sure pretty much everywhere lower 48 is very different than where and how you were living in Alaska. Um, what was it like to, to make that transition down into the lower 48? Did you struggle with that? Did you find yourself feeling lost or did you just pick it right back up? Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, a quick plug, I don't even know, but, uh, the comfort crisis, if you haven't read it, read it. I wish everyone was required to read it to graduate school, but uh, it's a phenomenal read about, uh, finding discomfort in our lives and, and what, how we can find our truest and best self from it. But, uh, but yeah, going down to lower 48, I just merged back into society it was, I shopped for all my groceries. I, I bought stuff that was convenient and quick and easy. I, you know, marketplace and Craigslist and every, you know, everything's at your fingertips. I drank all the eggnog I could and all the booze I didn't have to make and, and all this stuff that was just so easy. So I gained 70 pounds. I didn't feel good physically. I didn't feel good emotionally. I wasn't connected in a way to my neighbors. I'll tell you a quick story. So it's not like, I'm not saying everyone lives like that. I'm not saying my family lives down there. So many millions and millions of wonderful, loving, fantastic human beings. Like I'm not trying to write off the whole place. I'm just saying is um, I felt so disconnected uh, from my community. I felt like I was, I was, I felt this urban loneliness 
uh, where I worked on this, this sauna, this mobile sauna I was working on for 17 days, right on the street in downtown Ann Arbor, 50,000 students in the college, huge 100,000 people in the town or whatever. And I must add hundreds of people walk by me in 17 days and not one person ever said hi, not one. And uh, and that right there was like it's like they were afraid to break this agreement that would that would somehow harm or harass or that was a hardship or like there was something written to where like we don't look at each other. We don't say hi. We're not friendly. There's no niceties. I don't know if it's COVID. I don't know if it's a culture nowadays or whatever, but that just broke my heart, man, because uh, because that connection with people is so is so precious and so valuable of just having a conversation and looking people in the eye and like, you know, just, I don't know, there's something about it that fills me up and, and watching that day after day after day, it just ground me down. And it's part of the reason I'm coming back North is like, uh, you just wouldn't, you just wouldn't see that happen up here. Like, I don't know what it is, but people um, want to interact, want to engage, want to help, like are cheering for you. Like uh, it's just a very positive culture to be in and a very um, inclusive culture. So yeah, that was tough. So yeah, I did. But also I saw a ton of I saw a ton of goodness too. I saw a lot of organizations that are doing wonderful things for kids, for elders, for the environment. I saw um there is there's a lot of good going on down there. I just see it happening in isolation a lot. And uh and that's just so different than what I had seen for 15 years. So I'm excited to go back and um you kind of feel like a big fish in a small pond. You feel like a big deal when you move into a small community. Like you matter. The things you bring to the community matter. If you teach karate or French or trapping or whatever it is that your little specialty or interest is like people latch onto it because no one's been there for 50 years. It's done karate. And so everyone participates from 60 years old to seven year, seven years old and they're excited and it makes you feel good. It fills you up to say, wow, like I'm, I'm giving something meaningful to the community. So like that is, it's just a rush. And, uh, and I love to be in that. And I, 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 I would assume too, that there's also a, that with that comes a, maybe a drive to live a better life. I don't know if there's, you know, there's all these people and it's close knit and you know that people are, are depending on you for whatever that they might need to depend on you. I would assume that that comes with a, a, a drive to just live better and to be better. I, I feel that like for sure. And, uh, and it's like, yeah, people are counting on you. Like I could disappear. There's no easier place in the world to disappear than in a city. Like I could fall off the grid for months and it wouldn't affect anybody. The city would march on. Everything would march on. There's 15 karate studios or, or language centers or mechanics or whatever it is that you offer to the community. And, uh, and so in that small town, like people, man, if you fall off for three days, people will be checking on you. What's going on? Where are you at? Are you okay? Like there's just so much more of that including, you know, of, uh, whatever it is. I don't know, but, um, yeah, it definitely drives. I like myself better in small areas. I like myself better up here up North than I did down to lower 40. I was less fulfilled. I was less proud of myself. I was less motivated. I was less gross, uh, growth oriented. Like, yeah. So for sure, for sure. Did you find yourself first, that story about, um, building the sauna that like, that kind of hurt me a little bit. I can't imagine, um, like thinking from your perspective of being there and doing this awesome thing, first of all, right? <laughs> um, and something that so many people could probably benefit from. And, you know, being surrounded by people and no one acknowledges your existence. Like that, that's like a really sad, that's a sad tale 
for one. Yeah. Um, did you ever find yourself in the time that you've spent down here? I'm, I'm gathering that you're gregarious in, in some way. I mean, you, <laughs> you seem you're very, you know, outgoing and happy. And um, did you find yourself when you were down here, for lack of a better term, because that's what it is. Did you find yeah. yourself wanting to kind of go turn inward and kind of just, I want to be myself. Like, did it start to get you to that point or were you still always maybe kind of struggling or trying to find that community and that connection? I know it exists down there. Like I know that community exists, but for me, I don't think I had either. I don't have the self-discipline to do it. So there's people growing their own food there. There's people, you know, homesteading and doing incredible projects, spinning wool and blacksmithing and like you know that community exists down there so either i gave up too early or i just didn't have the self-discipline like when you get around all those creature comforts it was just so easy to to join society to join the show so that's on me that's i'm not blaming anyone for that like it wasn't like oh the community wasn't there for me like no i needed to invest the time i need to be proactive you know i tried to do the meetup app and i tried to play in a euchre night and i tried to you know offer any sort of services i could but like in the end like i gave up probably earlier than i should have so that's on me but um so you're saying that you're lazy and alaska is easy (laughs) (laughs) it's easy when it's so like here's the deal about all that right like Let's say, just pretend with me for a second, you down there, you have, how do you heat your home, Sam? Baseboard, heat, furnace, whatever. We have a, a furnace, yeah. Just a, there you go, okay. Yeah, natural so gas it's furnace. Just a tur- yeah, and there's very little input from you into that furnace. Don't need to feel bad about that. That's just the way it is. Now up here, say I would heat. Well, I need, it's so much more stimulating. Intellectually, it's stimulating because I need to know how to run a wood stove or or identify a dead tree. Physically, it's stimulating because I got to go out and haul this wood and pack it and chop it and stack it. You know, socially, it's stimulating because you never go alone. You pack your neighbors with you and family with you and kids with you and it's sledding and fire. And and emotionally, it's stimulating because you you build a self-confidence that, hey, I can do it. Every time you put a log in the fire, you're giving yourself a little tap on the shoulder saying, man, I can, I can do it. I can do it. And like, uh, and when you compare that to diesel or furnace or something else where you lose all of that stimulation. Uh, so, yeah, so I think up here, it's like it's encouraged and you find you find that neighborhood. It's like everybody does it like down there. I just search more like a needle in a haystack up here. It's the lifestyle of the entire community. So you just jump right in and uh, hop on the wagon. Well, and I mean, not that we need to talk about wood heat forever, because I'm sure that'll be <laughs> exciting for people. But you're probably always looking at your neighbor's wood pile too, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I'm always, <laughs> I'm always behind. It will no. Never- well, you're either envious of the wood pile. Or you're saying, hey, you know, we probably should go get so and so some wood. Looks oh, like they totally. need a tree or two. Yes. I mean, I've lived in communities up here, man. Again, matriarchs. I'll vote woman just about any day of the week is uh taking care of the elders making sure they have wood checking on stuff like that so it's like yeah people in the community like no one's gonna let someone go without it but like in in, when i live in lower 48 like my furnace went out no one noticed or said anything or we'll be there we'll be right over you know it's not something people don't want to help there's wonderful people it's just it's less visible again we live in our homes in our little caves uh, I feel like we're a little bit disconnected. Everybody has a snowblower. Everybody has uh, a rototiller. Everybody has every tool. When on the block, you only need one of each of those. You can share, you know. Like, but it's just it's not as communal anymore. And uh, maybe once used to be. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I want to talk 
about, I thought this a while ago, but this, this book, The Comfort Crisis, because it seems like I'm getting some pretty heavy themes about your philosophy and the way you, you live your life. And so I'm curious of, of what The Comfort Crisis is and kind of your, I guess, your take on what it means to you and, and just your thoughts in general. Yeah, it's just, it's about finding, um, it's about, you know, basically the history of humankind for four and a half million years. Um, our species is about saying like all the discomfort that we evolved in food wise, like we would go, we don't know hunger. We don't know um, nowadays, like we constantly stuff ourselves with food based on a clock or on traditions, you know, eat this time, this time, this time on breaks and on work in society. And so it talks about the effects of digestion, effects of sleep, the effects of all this stuff whenever you're not eating constantly, uh, whenever even temperature of your body, it looks at cultures that live in cold, windy, rainy, what we consider miserable places. Look at Iceland and their men live you know, six to 10 years longer than most other developed countries. Why is that? And it taught, so basically it's just talking about how, you know, discomfort in your life can be physically healthy, emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy. Like it just goes through. And so it's, we've become, and they talk about the comfort creep. And so for me, it's like, yeah, that I, I've noticed it on a small level, like being down in civilization the last 12 months is like, God, I was comfortable, but was I, fulfilled was i engaged was i you know living my best life and i wasn't and so um and finding ways to to just interject little bits of that into our kids lives into our families lives that discomfort and that the gratefulness and gratitude and all the other effects it's like everybody's in this ice bath nowadays right you see it all over people posting their ice bath like that's not comfortable they're not getting in there because that feels good but there's some sort of benefits to it well there's so many things um, from walking, food, temperatures, all these discomfort, social discomfort, um, I think that have really positive effects. And we have never in our lives, you know, a baby born today is more comfortable than any living thing that's ever walked this planet. And, you know, since the planet's existence and 4 billion years of life, uh, there's the, and I was in 1984 when I was born, I was the most comfortable thing, the most privileged thing, the most entitled living thing that had ever walked the planet. I mean, I went on a game show for Christ's sake where I got a camp and see if I could win $500,000. That's where we're at. That's how comfortable we are. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I spent a, a year um, commuting under my own power, right? Whether that be running or cycling, riding a bike. And it was like a... I don't know, like eight to 12 miles one way, depending on how I decided to cut it. Right. And it was the funniest thing at first. I was just like, Oh, look at me, you know, this is awesome. And then at about the nine month mark, I had this realization. I was like, man, how fortunate am I that I have the choice, right? Like I get to decide to run eight to 12 miles at five in the morning. I get to decide to ride a bike 10 miles to work today. Like I have the choice. I can either jump in my truck or I can jump on the train or I can make it hard. And it was a, it was a weird like thing in my brain when that connection was made of like that even today there are people that aren't so blessed and fortunate to be able to choose to run or ride a bike to work. Right. Oh. And it like that, it took that, that really messed with me for a while when I had that realization of 
that was something that I was blessed to be able to choose. And it just, it, yeah, that sent me for a loop for a while. Beautiful, man. I got it. I got it. You said the word choice and I had to throw some like an education. I think that's gorgeous story, man. And, uh, and we have that choice every, almost every single second of our lives. Like, uh, you sit in a chair right now that you, okay. So here's the deal in education. My biggest thing, I'm not, I'm not trying to promote, let's go back and be cavemen and let's go back, live like, you know, like we did in 1500 and like, oh, we got to rough it or we got to do this. To me, it's DIY. I think homesteading is a silly word, but it's like, do it yourself. And what that does is it gives you a choice right now. Let's say you go down and buy bread from the, from a bakery. Well, if you don't know how to bake bread, you don't actually have a choice whether I'm going to make it or I'm going to buy it. Your only choice is where you're going to spend your money, be a consumer. So we try to make that this big facade that you have all the choice in the world. Look at these seven bakeries that are three miles from you. But you actually don't have a choice. If you go down and change your oil, if you don't know how to change your oil in your car, you don't have a choice. You're just you're dependent on the service society. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I'm saying is having that choice is so beautiful to say, hey, I'm going to grow a garden instead of buy everything from the store. And then some years that might not work in your schedule in your life. That's okay, whatever. But you had a choice. And so for me, it's about giving kids, our youth, choices to uh, to do the things that you do in your life. Everything you do in your life from clothes to recording music and videos to baking bread and brewing beer. I mean, whatever it is that you consume, think about the five things that you consume most in your life and say, this year in 2023, I'm going to learn how to do one of them so that the rest of my life, I have a choice on whether I do it or not. But that, that's my that's my biggest thing hmm. is choice. I love that. That is a that's a really cool goal. Think of the the five your like your top five consumables or something. And, and how can you um, learn that craft? Uh, it'll connect you to your family, man. It'll connect you to yourself. It'll connect you to your kids and your community. It'll connect you to the earth. Or ingredients like whatever. I'm not gonna get all hippy dippy on you, but like it'll it'll change your life. Like that realization you had, you'll go, oh my god! Like the value and what you get out of it. Anyhow, I could go off. Yeah, no, I I love having. We so we have a garden. We have a a, I would say a pretty large sized urban garden. Um, It kind of got a little bit unruly last year for a few different reasons, (laughs) but yeah, there's I mean there's nothing more satisfying um, than like walking out in the garden and just eating a, a warm tomato that's been right on the vine. Like I, I hate like cold tomatoes now, right? I love just a warm tomato off the vine. Um, so yeah, it's super, there's something very, very, I don't know. It's hard to describe unless you've, unless you've done it, but we were talking about the, the comfort a minute ago and we had this really interesting experience last night. Um, I won't name names and I think these people actually might still be listening. So hopefully I don't get a a text message like, Hey, what are you doing? Um, so we, uh, we had an experience last night where we took some friends to the local indoor climbing wall. And so our, I've got two young daughters and they have two young daughters and we all, you know, went and, and, uh, my girls have been climbing for, I guess, almost a year now. And that's a big deal for a small child. You know, like we're, we are not creatures that are designed to be 40 feet in the air with nothing below us. You know, that just, that kind of sets everything in your in your being off and their, their young daughter, um, was pretty timid about it and she didn't want to do it and everyone was fine. You know, like just, she gets to watch other people do it. And eventually she went and grabbed the stuff. She's like, Hey, I want to put this gear on. I want to, you know, I want to get on the climbing wall. And she's only three, she's almost four. And it, it was the coolest thing for me to watch because 
you know, she got on the wall and she was a little bit timid, obviously, and it's a whole new experience. And when she got down, like the biggest smile and just so proud of herself that she did a scary thing that she didn't want to do and she overcame it, you know? And, um, so yeah, I think you're right. There's ways that you can, that you can do that and provide those experiences for kids, um, that don't involve moving to the middle of nowhere in Alaska. It's just, you, you probably have to work for it a little bit more. And it's, that's a beautiful story, man, because that's what we need to do with everybody. We need to set up an environment where they want to take that risk. We meet them where they are. All right. Like we didn't all come out climbing or baking or building or spinning wrenches or whatever we're doing. And we've learned that craft. And I just, it breaks my heart that I'm, you know, I'm not pessimistic. It breaks my heart. Like how we judge and criticize and they say like, you guys set up a culture, like when that girl got down, that it was safe that, you know, encouragement that you talked to, you know, you talked to her up, big smile and grinning and, and she overcame some things and built a lot of self-confidence. Like we need to do that for our neighbors. We need to do that for people on social media. We need to do that for everybody is create that. Like when they do something and they try something whether they fail or succeed, like be there and like, and want them to do it again, not criticize. It didn't look good. Didn't look right. Blah, you know, it's like, whatever. It's like, I just feel that culture of compassion or like encouragement. Like is that's, yeah, that's awesome. That's a really cool yeah. story. And I want to do that for adults as well as kids. Man. <laughs> one one last plug for the climbing. Like, so today my, my oldest daughter, she's like getting quite good actually. And, uh, you know, it's to the point where we're on top rope. So if you know, climbing basically top rope is like the, you know, it's as safe as it's probably safer actually than walking down the sidewalk. Um, I would dare <laughs> say, <laughs> And, you know, she's on top rope and, and we're to the point where I'm like, Hey, I'm going to start giving you some slack. So if you, if you screw up and you take a fall, you know, you're going to know it, you're going to fall a couple inches. You might fall a foot. And so I was prepping her for that. And we were kind of, you know, practicing today. And, um, so she was learning how to just fall off of a rock wall, you know, 10 or 15 feet in the air. And she took a fall and there was a little bit more slack than she was expecting. So she fell you know, a, a good couple feet and I lowered her down and she was just petrified. You know, she like started kind of in tears and coming over. She's like, dad, that was so scary. And we, we were able to talk about it for a minute and she was like, yeah, but I'm okay. Like we're good. And just got right back on the wall and a, a, that type of resilience and just learning how to be uncomfortable and then knowing that it's okay and to keep moving is, is huge. I, Personally, I love your focus on education. Um, I I think it's a, a beautiful thing. Are you are you going back? Are you going to be an educator in town? Or are you going back to teaching, or what will you be doing? So I've kind of been an educator for about fourteen years, uh, uh, ten years in like a K through twelve setting, and then um, in a kind of different form on the island the last four years. But um, you know, what I want to do now is start community farms all over rural Alaska. So five acre farms, kind of my dream. Um, and so there's going to be an educational component, getting schools involved in soil science and, and uh, ecology and, and uh, all sorts of uh, stuff. But, um, but no, I don't think I'll be stepping back into a classroom right away, but, um, but God, we can do so much with our kids. There's such, 
Yeah, they're such a resource. You know, some of your schools have a thousand high schoolers in it. And somehow we we don't feel like we can connect them to the community. We don't feel like we can connect them to the environment. We don't feel like they have anything to give back. Their entire job is to sit in a sterile building for six years, throw away every assignment they've ever done and graduate being, you know, fairly confused and disheartened and discouraged. And ah, it's not everyone's. I just think that we can do a lot better for, for our, again, for our entire time as being our species for plus million years, they've had so much to give. They've contributed. And just recently we've said, well, you don't really have anything to contribute. Uh, school's your only focus and job. And, uh, and we'll see you when you're 18. It's just, yeah, it's a, it's a discouraging thing. There's so many wonderful people working in education and giving their hearts and souls and lives. But as an institution, I just think we need some reform. So again i could blab on and on i just i get pretty passionate about it so i'll probably end up back in the classroom somewhere but for right now i want to grow food man feed people that's cool how long i mean I, I can't imagine very long how long is your growing season and will you be um taking advantage of methods to extend that growing season or are you only going to be working within your like two month window three month window is it's you can grow pretty well like in alaska agriculture is not a we import 95 percent of our food it's a very uh bizarre you know alaskans we like to think we're so independent but man if you cut off that that global food chain uh to alaska we're in trouble um at least in the urban areas you know and in anchorage of four hundred thousand people they'd be in real big trouble but uh so um so anyhow but you can grow i mean there's people there's a guy named tim myers at myers farm that grows 120,000 pounds of food on 10 acres. Like you can do it. It just hasn't been a traditional historic thing, right? Farming in Alaska hasn't been, um, hasn't really been a thing. So one day I hope it is. But, uh, but again, you know, people talk about growing seasons, like you don't need to extend. I'm not trying to grow specialty crops. Like it wasn't the great Irish strawberry famine. Uh, it was the great, you know what I mean? Because strawberries don't feed people. They're a novelty. And so is the potato famine for a reason. That's the most calories you can grow in a square foot at our latitude. And they do very well. You know, you can grow 15 or 20,000 pounds an acre. So, um, so we're going to grow foods that can grow within the weather window we have. It doesn't take that long for maturity for a potato, a carrot, cabbage, and kale. And they store well. They store all year. Uh, minus the kale, but the cabbage, potatoes, and carrots do. And so it's like and people eat those and can add it to their moose and seal and salmon and other wild berries and other things they subsist. So, um, yeah, instead of the food traveling 3,000 miles from Guatemala or being ultra-preserved or costly to get into the village, I think we can do a lot locally. So that's one of my one of my dreams, at least. Are you partnering with any entities um, on this journey, or are you starting out as just yourself – kind of bootstrapping it, knocking doors, or what's that look like? I'm, yeah, I'm too early to tell. Like, so uh, what I'm starting is called ABC Farms, Alaska Bush Community Farms. And uh, and I'm going to try and go door to door around the villages and see, uh, and they're going to be community farms. So they're not mine. They're not a for-profit. They're to feed communities. And so I just want to put them in, give them a couple years of on-the-ground support, maybe a couple of years of digital support. Uh, and then it's all there. It's their land and their food and their, um, their community. And so that's a goal. So I haven't got anyone, you know, like it's early, so I don't want to throw anyone, uh, under that bus, but if you're listening, uh, think about it and I'll be coming to your way in the next couple months. <laughs> so I'm, I'm gathering that you, um, have done a lot of growing on your various lands in Alaska. And is it like, do people, 
I mean, I guess you've already spoken to it, but what do people think when you're like, yeah, I'm going to grow, you know, all of these things. Is it kind of like, oh, we'll see how that goes. I mean, you've said everyone's super supportive, but what's that like to do something that is just seems foreign, I guess. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things, you always get those people that are like, you're crazy. Usually that's my mom and a few other people from around the community. <laughs> like, what are you doing? You're nuts. But, uh, but they're also supportive. And so like, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that garden and they have gardened for years or have been up and down through it. So like, but the scale and my, I love Wendell Berry and how he talks about the scale is all wrong. You know, you see, a, again, another school garden and every kid goes home with one strawberry and tomato. We don't know why anyone's not into it. It's like the scale's all wrong. And uh, so people resonate around food, like in rural Alaska and these communities people resonate to food if you make a dent in people's pantry and a dent in their wallet people will show up and uh, because food is life and uh, that's why they've been out there for thousands of years and so um so yeah i think uh people hopefully will see you know um i've grown a little bit you know, every year and I've, I've, I've tried to increase it and, and do more and more. I've done greenhouses and row covers and gardens and, and raised beds and container growing and aquaponics and hydroponics and, and tried some different systems. But I think I want to keep it simple, keep it in the soil, grow things that work and can be root cellar for the year. People, things that people eat. Um, and yeah, hopefully I'll gain momentum and people see, I think you get one or two of those in and people see how successful they are. Um, and again, it's like, I think people will resonate and say, Hey, we want one of those in our yeah. community or that looks pretty cool. So, yeah, it's, I, I've mentioned this before. So I, I, on the show, so I don't get too, too deep into it, but that was another like huge turning point in my life. Um, in my mind, at least, I don't know that I've taken action on it yet, but it, it certainly like plays in my mind when I make certain consumers decisions is just to stop and think of like, you know, a bottle of ketchup, like how think of like how many tomatoes were grown for that bottle of ketchup or like you go to the store to buy tomato paste and how many tomatoes and just how much resource went into that one little can, um, like chicken, right? Like we all love our chicken. And when you really stop to think of, you know, that your whole backyard would be nothing but chickens if you grew (laughs) your own chickens for the whole year, you know? And like I said, I haven't, made any changes on that yet but i'm sure that that realization of just thinking through how we operate you know and and the impact that has and and ways to to be better with it um i I think there's probably some evolution coming there but it is really crazy when you stop and think about the things we do that the earth (laughs) and that we are just not designed to do and in places we're not designed to do it um but yet you know, we can because technology and because, you know, thousand foot drilling rigs, but, um, yeah, yeah pretty crazy. Oh, I'm eating avocado and banana and ahi tuna steak any month of the year I want in a little village in Alaska. Like, should I be doing that just cause I can get a banana grown in Ecuador or get a avocado grown who knows where to me? Like, does that mean I should? And does that make me this political or that political ban or this? Like we, we make everything so political and then we start uploading memes and then we hate our neighbor and you know, all this stuff over an avocado. It all started and with avocados. <laughs> yeah, damn avocados. So it's like, uh, but it's like, yeah, you just got to think is like, just because I can do some of these things, maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not right. Maybe I don't deserve or entitled that. Maybe just because I'm human, I'm not um, that special, but I don't know. Anyhow, it gets, yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. Like I just, I ought to be intentional. The people out there, again, the culture 
is to be very intentional, very down to earth, very commonsensical, um, frugal, whatever it is, like uh, on things that make sense. And so, and again, I think that comes through some of the discomfort, whether it be economical, economic discomfort or, or just environmental, uh, geographical, whatever it is, like uh, some of the better parts of me come out. So that's yeah. why I like it. Your community farms, your community, yeah, farms. Um, how big is your your target size? Like, do you have an idea of like we want five a half acres. acre? You want a full five acre? Five acres. Uh, my goal is to grow fifty thousand pounds of food, two acres of potatoes, an acre of carrots, acre of cabbage, acre of kale, two forty foot shipping containers buried underground for root cellars, one for a community root cellar, the other one for. Uh, half for sales, so making boxes that you're shipping to other communities, and the other half for starting your seeds, your cabbage and kale seeds uh, in the spring, so two months a year. So insulate them, ventilate them, um, and then have fencing based on what your critters are, your predators. If you have porcupines or bears or moose, um, you can line it with a few different things that grow well, our apple trees, rhubarb, raspberries. I mean, they're not going to feed communities, but you can line your farm with that if, if communities want to try it. I mean, again, people are going to take it whatever direction they want, but I'm trying to really narrow it down to things that feed people, store well, part of their diet. So now you have potatoes you can do 15 different things with. They're my spirit vegetable, by the way. I can tell. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you have your potatoes and next to it you have your salmon or your moose and you have your berries and then you have some kale salad or something. I mean, you can have a plate that's basically 100% local. You can eat for dinner you know, most any night of the week can be pretty happy nutrient wise and, uh, and taste wise, and you can do a lot with. So that's, that's kind of my vision, but obviously like, I'm not going to come in there and like try and control that. Like communities have autonomy on what they want to do with it. I'm just trying to jumpstart it and say, I I like to dig, give me a shovel. Let's start this thing. And then uh, let's turn it over to you and, and you go with it where you want. Um, I'm sure that there's some of the, like, please don't ask this question. I'm gonna ask the question. Um, because I'm nerdy and weird, how irrigation on a on a Ugh. piece? <laughs> yeah, you you know where I'm going. Uh, that that answer. So irrigation on a plot of that size with that much stuff in Alaska. What does that What does that look like? Do you know what you're gonna have to kind of do? Obviously, it'll vary yeah. depending on where you're at, but. Yeah, but here's the thing. So it is gonna vary, uh, right? Community to community. But one thing that you find in Alaska that is everywhere that every one of these communities is on is water. Every yep. single community in Alaska is either on a lake, a river system, the ocean, like, you know, some body of water. Water, And I'm not saying that water isn't scarce in some places, but majority of the state is surrounded in water. And the water table's low. I say the water table's probably Ten, pretty low, right? Like or high, I guess, dude. High, so, yeah. like, I mean, excess water. Um, so, so I don't think, you know, it's the infrastructure of having electricity and pumps putting in a well or, uh, you know, uh, whatever it's, it's getting the water, um, actually on the land. So the land, and then every village has land. So that's another big thing, um, is every community, I think has 2040, the, the 2040 acres, or I, I might be messing up the number, but, uh, so they have land, they have airstrips, they have water, they have like air service that services with mail and stuff. So like you have this, if you can get electricity there and a pump, you can heat these, you know, you can keep these buried connexes for root cellars. You can irrigate the land. You can charge an electric fence. Like, it's very simple. Like, people want to go around and build greenhouses in Alaska, like these high-tech, high-cost, quarter-million-dollar things to grow. What are you growing greenhouses? Cucumbers and tomatoes and, like, you know, it's not stuff, man. Those are novelty items. It's not, like, let's keep it simple. 
So if funding dries up, something you can do for less than 10 grand a year, and you can grow a ton of foods so, and a lot of calories. Uh, and so, yeah, so to me, this is the way to keep it simple and successful. And, uh, and I think water, again, water will be an issue is how to get it, how to pump it. But I don't think finding it or the land will, will be difficult. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned those high-tech um, growing operations because that was something I wanted to mention is that um, I I think it's, I love your approach because it is, don't ask me why I've paid attention to growing in Alaska. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I know this. Um, <laughs> I, I'm weird, but I, I love, I love your approach because yeah, the, the last time I went down that rabbit hole, you know, it was all about, there was some, there's companies out there that are making these, you know, quarter million dollar plus basically shipping container, self-contained grow stations with lights and all these things. Right. And I remember thinking, Oh, that's cool. Like, that's a good way to, you know, like you need that. It's awesome to, to be more sufficient, but I mean, that thing's going to spend as much time down as it is up. And you know, so I, I don't know. I love, I love the approach. I think that's, it's really cool. It's totally changed my it. perspective. And I, and I don't want to knock people that are doing that. Cause I love anyone that's going after growing more food and getting more food growing the state. I love it, but I don't feel like that's the answer. I don't feel like it's scalable to feed a village. I feel like it's going to be a high overhead. What happens when the money runs out and all your lights need in 10 years need to be overhauled or, yeah. you know, the tech who can work on it or like fix it and uh, the scale of it. And then usually it's for profit and there's nothing wrong with that. People that want to drop those in places and make money and sell to Anchorage and the communities like wonderful, man, more power to you. I'm going to cheer you on. I just don't think in our rural areas, that's an answer to feed communities yeah, that's, that's and uh, not two acres so. of potatoes for sure. <laughs> Um, that's really cool. And and I'm asking another question and you, you, if you want to take a a pass on this one, you totally can. Cause I'm sure it's a, this is going to, you know, it it could be a tough question, but, um, I'm thinking about, you mentioned there's not much economy, right? But there is still some level of economy with people flying in food. And then you've got vendors in communities that are able to, you know, they're shopkeepers and that are selling things. And, um, do you have any plans or concerns about those relationships? And obviously you mentioned that there's going to be some sort of a commerce piece of it. Um, but are you concerned about that at all? Cause I can just, in my mind, I'm seeing some people feeling like there is encroachment and, and concerns there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's something I want to come into the community and listen and be on. I'm not trying to put anyone out of business or put any more strain or hardship on people that are already living in a pretty strained place. And so, um, but yeah, there isn't a whole lot in, in a lot of these communities. A lot of the economy is government, like school jobs, health clinic jobs, village council jobs. There isn't like stores and farmers markets. Like a lot of them might have a little general store, but they're getting their stuff from town, from a Costco or a Walmart, from bigger yeah. stores. And then, re- and so um, I think really my only competitor, I think you're going to inject a lot of business one through, you know, air freight. Um, and through hopefully selling vegetables to other communities and hiring a farmer, you're going to create a job in some of these communities. When you create a job in these communities, like some of them haven't had jobs created there for a long time. And so that's a big deal to hire someone local that every community now have a local farmer and, uh, and that'll be a pretty cool network. But, um, but yeah, the only people, the food people that you're dealing with is not local. Like if there were local Alaskan farms around, 
and I was going to be competing with them. Like that's a conversation I want to sit down at the table, but literally almost, like I said, over 95% of the produce and food that is coming in those communities is coming from the lower 48 and it's coming yeah. through big corporations. And so it's not that I'm like anti-corporations, which I might have a slight bent towards, but it's like, uh, sorry, Costco or sorry, Walmart. Like you're going to lose 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of this little village. Like it's really not, I, I don't feel like it's, there's not a niche there. Like it's not, yeah. it's not a competitive field. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking about the, the reseller in town, right? That person that is making the Costco run or, you know, paying for the stuff yeah. to come in on the plane. Um, yep. this is an interesting, interesting totally. thing, I guess. Totally. Yeah, no, there will be some, like, if, if you're trying to encourage to eat this food and not that food, like, uh, yeah, there's definitely might see a little dip in their bottom line. But um, but I feel like a lot of those stores and a lot of the people, like, if it's, see it's good for the community, um, it might be a little tougher on their bottom line. I think they'll still do fine because I'm not growing grains, flowers, beans, rice. I'm not making soda pop and cigarettes and other things that are sold at stores. So, uh it's just produce, and if we can, and if we can gain five percent people eating five percent more, ten percent more, I mean, these are little numbers. Um, I think that's a good thing. So yeah, that's this is awesome. Um, so Alaska Bush Community Farms is there going to be like a website, Facebook? Does that exist yep. already? It doesn't exist. It's in the development right now. I've kind of been working on it for about four years, and uh, I had so many ideas bouncing around in my head, and uh, just finally decided to. I wanted to pick one and go for it and go uh, all in. And so this will hopefully consume me uh, for the, I mean, I, you know, for the next few years or, or beyond if it's successful. So, uh, but you'll see something launched this spring. So I'll have a, a website, do something on social media. I'm going to be making a video um, and yeah, just document everything. This is what, this is uh, kind of my passion project at the moment. So that's cool. Um, I'm excited to follow those because again, for some reason I've paid attention to growing things in Alaska. I really don't know why. Um, so I'm super excited to see how that turns out. Um, I guess one last question on that. How, how, I guess, what's the scale of the growing you've done so far? And, and so obviously for comparison for what you're going to be doing. Yeah. And again, I'll probably lead that out by saying I'm definitely no expert. I have not farmed in Alaska before. I've grown gardens for 10 or 12 years. I'm an Alaska master gardener. I've grown, you know, whatever. I've grown in 7,000 foot greenhouses. I've grown in tiny little 30 by 50 gardens. I've grown, you know, hundreds of pounds of root vegetables and greens or, you know, like whatever, tire potato gardens on the porch. Like I've done very little and I don't claim to come in here and say, you know, that I've done it. I'm farmed on this scale and, and we're just going to keep doing it. I like basically have grown enough and learned enough and seen examples. Farragut Farms in Southeast Alaska, Bowen Mara, super inspirational. Tim Myers out of Bethel, like going around to these conferences um, in Alaska, these farmer summits and seeing what people are doing. And I want to replicate their ideas. I kind of want to be a disciple for them. Those are people that are growing on a scale that I want to, but I want it to be community driven. So I've done enough personally to feel like I have a a pretty good idea. I've seen examples that are really inspiring in the state and people that want to give it away, they want to replicate it. They're not closing their farms and saying, you know, don't do this because they live in a totally different demographic market. They want to see it be a thing and and they're willing to share their ideas. Again, it's that culture of, uh, of sharing. So so yeah, it'll be uh it'll be a scale different than what I'm used to, but um you know again with growing, people say, "Oh, I don't have a green thumb." A green thumb doesn't mean anything. Plants have certain 
biologic needs, pH and nutrients and sun and warmth. And if you give them that, they miraculously, they kind of grow uh, every year. And so we just need to do that. And we need to set up a system that's low tech, simple, can be replicated, you know, it's healthy for soils and the community. And like, uh, and I think things could possibly do well. We'll yeah, see. that's so exciting. I, I really want to talk about growing media and your soils and all of that. Like I, I'm fascinated <laughs> with what you're doing, but um, maybe for the sake of others, we'll, we'll keep that yeah. for a, a <laughs> messenger chat or something. Um, right. One of the things we talked about and we didn't get into it and well, we didn't get into it before we started recording. So I want to kind of go there now um, is we, your sauna project. First of all, uh, it looks like, did you get your, your axle fixed up? You're back on the road. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I was stuck for a few days there in Saskatchewan. <laughs> it was fun, but uh, man, what a, again, a learning opportunity. People were teasing me too. They're like 38 years old. You're finally learning about bearings. Well, it's like, I've lived in the bush for 15. This is not an excuse. It's my fault. But, uh, when you live somewhere where there's not cars and trailers and a ton, I mean, there's still bearings on things, but, uh, but you're not living with it day to day. It kind of delays some of those learning opportunities. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey, if you know, for your first, um, for your first experience, a, a trailer axle is that, that was a good, a good, get your feet wet. I'm assuming. Totally. No, it was great. I was just kind of, kind of happened in a better spot with the timeline I had, you know, I had enough bucks in my pocket to be able to buy parts and a uh, parts store 45 minutes away. People that would, would help. Again, I ran into people, man, that were like, hey, this is what you need to do or check out this video or or just, you know, giving me tips and encouragement. And uh, and so, yeah, it would just couldn't have been better to work on it and uh, and to take two nights. Like some people could fix that in an hour. It took me almost three days. But uh, but hey, now I can do it in less time and I feel yeah. more confident in it and I can help out. If someone breaks down the road, I can say, oh, you know, I've done that before. Let's let's p- pick it apart. So yeah, pretty stoked about it. Yeah, I did. I did trailer axles for the first time, uh, not in an emergency, not emergency, but you know, I did mine voluntarily uh, over the last year. <laughs> and so saying, I think that's a good, that's a good get your feet wet. Cause I also did my truck bearings a little bit before that. And I did that kind of bass backwards. Um, <laughs> but so this, this mobile sauna, so I, I love sauna and I think it's an incredible thing. And I think I'm more interested in your philosophy and, and we'll probably less talk about the benefits of sauna. Um, but I've been wanting to put a sauna in, right? And I'm, I've am i been watching my local classifieds and looking for people that are tearing down decks and you know fences and just have, I'm, I'm not afraid of ramshackle, right? Um, but I, so I want to build one. And it's funny because I started getting, I got stuck on the, the heat source question. And, um, so this is when Colton and I started talking about this earlier, it was like, Hey, we need to stop this conversation have this chat, you know, in a recording because, you know, today when you look around, there's so much information and there's so many things and there's so many businesses, you know, that are, that are trying to sell you something. And if you decide to go wood fired, you would think that wood fired would be like pretty economical. You can, you know, it's going to help you get in cheaper and easier, but like you, if you want to buy a dedicated, you know, sauna stove, I mean, you're looking at a thousand dollars, right? And they've got all this like fancy, you know, just fanciness, right? And in my mind, like that just doesn't like, it's, there's gotta be a different way to just get a, a cheap heater. And so I was super excited to talk to Coulter, be like, Hey, like, how are you heating it? And what's your experience been? 
And you had a pretty strong reaction to my question in a good way, in a good way. And I want to talk about that. Um, if you can, I mean, I hope that's enough of a cue for you to just jump in, but yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want to learn man about saunas, you want to develop that, like one, you know, go to a sauna culture, go to, go to Russia or Iceland or, or, you know, Scandinavia, go somewhere where there's sauna. But, and, and here's my experience is I moved to native Alaska. I moved to Bush, Alaska and they, it's a muck guy. And uh, in, in the village, there's six or seven muck guys and people will get on their VHF radio at night and say, muck guys lit, you know, 530 steams lit. And then women will go and men will go or families will go, or, you know, and then you go through and it's communal and it's a bathhouse. And, and there's a and, it, and if you go in there, like all of those insecurities, all of those questions you have, all of this. And I'm not saying there isn't a sauna culture down south, but it's not strong. You know, it's like you find one every 10,000 people. Coulter, I've been in a lot of saunas down here and it's a lot of people on cell phones. Yes. And so, uh, so it's like, you go in there, man, and some of them are made of sheet metal. They recovered from an old school that was recited, or they're made from everybody's got a barrel stove and it's got 15 holes on it. It's not sitting on any legs and it looks like it's going to burn. It's got a stick holding the door together or, you know, whatever it is, you make do with what you have. And it's about the experience. It's about the health benefits. It's about the communal aspect. And, and I'm not saying that there's some that are beautiful, but they use them. I mean, some of them are used 200 nights a year or more, a lot oh. of them. And so I'm talking, I knew a guy, an elder, uh, Martin Wassily, that, I mean, he would steam like 300 nights a year. Like, I'm talking people use it, man. It's a part of your lifestyle. Uh, like, you use your fridge. And uh, and so, and so, but wood, and to me, is so wood made sense out there. And barrel stoves, you ship in oil and gas and barrels, they convert them into stoves. They toss off a lot of heat uh, instead of holding it. You know, they're quick, quick to heat up. There's a lot of benefit, and they're cheap. And you can use your little barrel stove kit for your door and your pipe over and over and over through a bunch of barrels. Um, and so just keep it simple. Again, everyone thinks I need cedar. Oh, my God. I saw this cedar sauna at this lodge, at this resort, at this spa, on this Instagram post. It's got to be cedar. Well, you're going to tease me because mine is cedar now because I planned on building it where I could rent it out. My plan was to rent this in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so people would check it out for a date night or for a party towed to the ski hill whatever they were going to do i was going to rent it out i thought oh no one's going to rent it if it's my bush league alaskan you know metal can with it i was going to throw plastic chairs in there from like uh yard chairs in a barrel stove and say sweat because that's what you're doing but uh so i made it out of cedar but like my god just built like you said there's a fun saying that's instead of ready aim fire so you're waiting around to get ready, man. And then you're going to go. The saying should be aim, fire, ready. You know what you want to do? Fire. Go do it. <laughs> you'll get ready along the way. You'll build another one. You'll build one for an in-law or for a neighbor. You'll, you know, you'll learn as you go. But like uh, you're missing days, man, where you could be in there sweating. So wood to me is number one. It heats your body from the inside out, that radiant heat. And, uh, and it gets you more connected, man, more connected to the trees, to the forest, to your land, to your body. Like you got to get wood. Even if you're buying it, you learn about wood. Your kids learn about wood, like, uh, and an electric sauna and some of that stuff, whatever you do, whatever you can, you meet whatever with your lifestyle and your budget, and your ordinances that you live within, of course, but there's no question, man. Like when you walk into a wood fire and sauna over electric, there's, you just, you feel it instantly. You can't hide that. Yeah. How, uh, how big is the stove? Cause you said you picked up like a, like a regular wood burning stove I and mean, what size of stove do you have in yours? Cause your trailer is not massive, right? 
like trailers a, five foot by ten. Yeah. So it's five by ten. I've had six people in there, which is kind of about a max. Um, and so uh, it really does four or five real comfortably, three, four, five. But uh, I have a little Volzel Gang stove that's made in Michigan. It has like twenty four inch firebox by twelve inch wide by maybe twelve inch tall. But um, it's just perfect, man. I got it for fifty bucks online. I put some scrap metal over some of the cracks. Uh, on top just like where your little plate goes for you can cook on top so water doesn't go down in there but uh pick that up for scrap and uh and anyhow it heats the thing quick it's safe i put it into where i had all my clearances uh, i push some of the clearances but it's metal walls it's not near combustible walls so like uh i have metal on the ground and on the sides so um so it's not a fire a trap um but yeah like wood 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 i've rocks that go on it i have water that goes on it i have a cold water 20 gallon garbage can for i bathe in it so i put drains in the floor and uh and that's that's how i shower man so i you know i sweat 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 and hang out with people sweat go in and out in and out and then at the end i uh i wash i have a couple basins and again this is what i learned in the village man this is a steam bath and uh and i would take a, a bath and now so to me a shower it gets pretty lonely now when i just hop in a shower i'm like where is everybody huh. because uh steam, steam bath is so communal and it's an experience so yeah that's cool um man that is like I, <laughs> that's interesting to think of of showers as like a as a lonely experience you know but if you look back on in history right i mean my first thought was yeah like think of all the old bathhouses and communal communal bathing and there's still you know, countries in the world where that's like a thing, right? Um, oh, yeah. That's... Oh, it's huge. But it's, it's our body shame, our insecurities, our sexuality. It's like taboo or it's just a giant orgy or it's like whatever. You know, people just get so nervous and taken back. And it's like, this is something we do every day. We're ashamed of our own comes out of our body we're fecal phobes but you know what kids do they dissect owl pellets and they pick up moose poop and they throw it at each other and like whatever but like if it comes out of our body we're afraid don't talk about it feel dark shame like there's it's not a resource there's nothing to learn about it's like so yeah our bodies and, and that same kind of thing in there it's just like ah it's such a beautiful when i learned it's not a culture i came from at 22 when i went and first took my first muck guy in the village it just opened my mind to so much and it reduced some of that insecurity went away and you just connected with people so yeah pretty cool um the technical question about your rocks do you just have do you have like a like a like a basically like a steel mesh basket that you put the rocks in on top or how have you done that yeah, and I had uh, what I've done is I've asked people that come into the sauna to bring their own rock, BYOR. Cool. So it's a collection of people's rocks from uh, Michigan to here. Haven't had any rock and bombs yet? Not yet. Like, again, you know, I'm not great. My geologic knowledge is uh, lower than I wish it would be. But, um, but yeah, they're picking them from all over. And so, but uh, so far, everything's been safe and good. But I think you want, you know, volcanic, igneous, I don't know what exactly type rocks yeah. are ideal. But, but we're just going with it. And so far, we've been all right. Well, since I've got you, I'm going to, um, I'm going to selfishly request that you put a picture out there somewhere of your stove set up. Because, in my mind, I was like, I just, I want, I needed to talk to someone who'd done it because apparently I'm afraid of just, I want to ready aim, right? Um, yeah. Basically, I just didn't want to make a, a false start and end up blowing money on a stove anyways. So if you wouldn't yeah. mind uh, either posting it or just sending a picture my way of your stove set up, I'm super curious. Um, I'll send you a picture as soon as we're done talking. Love it. Coulter, this has been awesome. Um, I really love... 
I love your perspectives and your outlooks. I, I love your community focus and your focus on education. Um, I think it's, it's, I don't know, it's just the looking out for each other. I, I love the concept of, of looking out for one another. And um, I go back to your story of building your sauna and it's, I don't know, that's a, that's a sad thing for me, right? Um, you know, I, the place where my parents live in Montana, um, you know, it's a very small community and it was always, everyone waves at everyone. And so I grew up driving through town, just waving at everybody. And, you know, there's, there's people that are quietly making sure that wood piles are full and, you know, just doing stuff like that. And there's opportunity around us if we, if we look for it, right. There's the ability to go push snow for a neighbor. There's the ability to do whatever. Um, it just, I think you're right. I think it, it takes more effort down here. It, it's harder to do, but it's, it's still doable. Um, I yeah. think I've got one last formal question for you and then we'll let you, if there's anything else that you want to discuss or talk about, but is there anything as you're, as you're getting further North and I mean, you know, you're in Whitehorse, so you're pretty, pretty far out there already. Um, but as you're getting closer to home. Is there anything that you find yourself oddly missing from the last 12 months? Like, is there any part of you that's, that's thinking of something that's left behind? That's not people, I, mean, I, I guess. My parents, you know, my, my, my parents are getting older, man. They're in their seventies and uh, they want nothing more than to spend every waking second with me and their other, their other sons and their families. Like to them right now, that's their life and their, and their legacy. And they just, they want to, and they have the other things going on, man. They got card groups and hunting and friends and stuff, but like, they just want to be so involved. They're so loving and they're so uh, family oriented that they, they want us to be there. So for me, leaving them is so hard. It's just even hard for me to talk about because it's like, I'm not running away from them. I'm running towards something that I, that I really love, but uh, God, they don't have a lot of, you know, they don't have a lot of time left and you just never know with your health. They might have five years, they might have 25 years and who knows like what their health's like. And so that's the hardest part for me is like, part of me wants to kind of compromise, you know, my being my truest self and, and where I want to be and just be down there and be with them and be for them. But I know that they wouldn't, they wouldn't want that either. So that's probably the hardest thing. Yeah. Um, is that a, and this is a super personal question. Is that a new draw with the time you were able to spend? Cause I'm assuming in the last 12 months, you spent more time with them than you did in, in 15 years prior. Right. Hands down. Hands down. Yeah. Like more, like, yeah, the last 12 months I saw him exactly more than I've seen in 15 years. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it might be an age thing. It's, I, I love my family, but we're not, we don't have to be next door to each other. I have to, you know, interact every day. Like we, we can talk once a month or laugh or send jokes online or, or email updates or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, just as they age, you know, it's just like um, at some point I feel like I need to go down there and live with them for a year or for two or for more. You know, people do that. You want to take care of your your parents. I don't want them just to go into some home or something. But uh, but yeah, I just um, God, I'm just trying to figure out that balance between my passion and dreams and where I want to be and where my truest self is and my parents and how much time they have left on the planet. And so, and what, what, what my responsibilities should be, what I want to do and be there uh, to give back to them. So it's, 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 it's tough. It's definitely been tough. 
Yeah. That's a whole other thing that we could probably riff on for a while is, is, uh, <laughs> end of life probably, you know, there where you're, where you're at versus here. Um, and how it's not even just end of life, just generational living, how we just don't do that here, you know? And, yeah. uh, thankfully I have an older <laughs> brother just to say one thing, man, I got an older brother and his family that are, you know, there with them almost every weekend, all the time, take them around to farm shows. They run a goat farm and have horses and animals and, and he has their four kids and kids are involved. So like, thankfully, man, I have an older brother that's doing the work and, uh, and there's really close with them. So that helps, <laughs> but still, you know, it just still, you think about it, it weighs on you. Yeah. Well, I guess you've got some extra drive to get the running water to your camp and cozy it up <laughs> a little bit. So mom will come back. There you go. <laughs> well, Coulter, um, as we wrap up, is there anything that you that you want to talk about or that you want to mention? Anything you want to clarify or set records straight or anything at all um, before we wrap up today? Not really, man. I think we covered a lot. Education and rural Alaska and family and, and uh, comfort. So, yeah, no, there's not a whole lot. I hope we can make caring cool again and just care about each other and uh and just feel grateful every day to wake up to everything that we have and how how comfortable and our lives are and how lucky we are to be alive so i don't think there's anything man not much for me okay well your first alaskan bush company bush community farms shirt is going to say make caring cool on the back um because right. i i love that that's a that's um yeah, I love that. And I'm going to start reading The Comfort Crisis because that seems like something that I'm going to enjoy. But Coulter, thank you so much for your time today. I'm super excited to see um, where your ventures go in the future. I'm glad that, you're, that you've are that you surfaced for a little bit. Um, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you stay up for air a little bit this time so we can kind of see what's going on there. But um, yeah, just thank you so much for your time and I hope you have safe travels and, and get back to where you're going. Awesome. Thank you, Sam, for the time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. And we'll uh, we'll be in touch. Okay. Start of a relationship. Take care, man. 